Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from the words of Henry Morris, who wrote a book called The Bible and Modern Science back in the 1950s. A little out of date in some ways, but uh, the arguments are still very, uh, very real. The physical cause and character of the flood must necessarily be somewhat a matter of speculation. There are, however, some very interesting possibilities suggested by the Genesis account of creation and the flood, which we shall now examine. It's intimated in Genesis 2 that there was no rainfall, such as we know it now, in the, uh, the time before the flood. Also, the rainbow is later mentioned specifically as a divine token given to Noah by God after the flood, implying that atmospheric water, if any, was always in the vapor state and could not form a rainbow. The statement in Genesis 1 that the waters which were above the firmament were separated during the creation from the waters which were below the firmament would imply that at this time there was a great body of water vapor surrounding the earth above its atmosphere. The word translated firmament literally means expanse and would seem to be descriptive of the atmosphere, or at least the troposphere, which is that part of the atmosphere in which there are now convection currents, storms, clouds uh, below the stratosphere. Uh, Certain very unusual atmospheric and climatic conditions are also indicated by the extreme longevity of the people who lived then. Such a condition is also strongly implied by the biblical record of a tremendous rain continuing for 40 days and 40 nights as one of the causes of the flood. We've already shown that the Bible teaches very clearly and emphatically that the flood was worldwide and therefore must have required a worldwide cause. A mere local rainstorm, however severe, could never have produced the biblical flood. It is certain that present atmospheric and meteorologic conditions could never be such as to produce a universal rainstorm lasting for 40 days. There's only enough water vapor in the atmosphere at present to cover the lands to a depth of a few inches. However, there is enough water in the oceans of the world to cover the entire earth to a depth of about two miles if the terrestrial topography were smoothed to a common elevation. It is conceivable that much of the present oceanic water was, before the flood, stored in a great vapor canopy surrounding the earth. It may have extended throughout the present stratosphere and ionosphere, which at present is a vast layer above the stratosphere, in which there are great numbers of atoms and molecules in an ionized state, and in which are produced many remarkable electrical phenomena, or may even have been largely outside the present bounds of these layers. It is even conceivable that much of this water vapor could have existed in the form of dissociated oxygen and hydrogen, There's not much known as yet about the upper atmosphere, even as it exists at present, and it is surely possible that vastly different conditions may have prevailed in the past, as seems to be implied in the Bible record. In some way, the great canopy condensed 
and descended upon the earth at the time of the flood. There is no intimation in Scripture as to what may have triggered the precipitation of the canopy, neither is there any way by which it could be ascertained scientifically. One could speculate as to possible physical mechanisms, passage of the earth through a a cometary train or a swarm of meteorites, widespread volcanic eruptions, a shift in the earth's axis, etc. But such speculations would only be that and nothing else. It is not unreasonable to suggest that the direct intervention of God himself may have been involved because of his intense personal concern. If he did use secondary mechanisms, he has not been pleased to reveal them in the biblical record. This great canopy of vapor, if it existed, would have resulted in just such physical phenomena as are indicated in Scripture and geology to have prevailed before the flood. It would probably have been invisible to the inhabitants of the earth, but would have intercepted and filtered out much of the short wavelength radiation that now reaches the earth, including ultraviolet and X-rays, and the mysterious and intensely powerful cosmic rays. In fact, the earth's present blanket of invisible water vapor throughout the atmosphere makes life possible on the earth by this very action. If the ultraviolet and cosmic radiation were not thus filtered before reaching the earth, it would quickly destroy all life if it could reach the earth in full strength. Therefore, the existence of the pre-Diluvian waters above the firmament would have caused a healthier physical environment than now exists on the surface of the earth. This would be further enhanced by the fact that the canopy would have the effect of preventing extremes of heat and cold, resulting in a uniformly warm and probably subtropical climate all over the globe. This phenomenon has already been mentioned as demonstrated geologically by the discovery in polar regions of many evidences of former warm climatic conditions there. This uniform climate, together with a probably much different and more gentle arrangement of topography than has existed since the flood, would have caused much different meteorological conditions. High winds, storms, etc. would have been impossible since they result basically from temperature differences. Indeed, it is unlikely that even rain as we know it now could have been produced, though there would have been a continuous interchange of water near the surface, from evaporation and transpiration into the air, and then back to the land at night as dew and mist. This inference is also supported by the phenomenon mentioned in Genesis 2, 5 and 6, that says, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Also, with no water except transparent water vapor in the air, the rainbow would be unknown until after the flood when its first appearance made it a beautiful and striking token of God's promise to Noah. There may have also been great underground reservoirs of water under pressure, implied in the term waters below the firmament, 
and in the later reference to the fountains of the great deep. These would have surface or underground outlets at certain places, and thus maintain rivers and a subsurface water table, which would support luxuriant vegetation elsewhere. It would be emphasized that these suggestions are merely uh, suggestions. They're not specifically taught in Scripture. However, available meteorologic and geologic knowledge, together with the various biblical statements concerning antediluvian phenomena, all show striking harmony with the outlined theory or some modification of it. As we have seen in the preceding chapter, modern genetic research has well demonstrated that hereditary variation in living things is caused chiefly by gene mutations. The same research has also demonstrated that these changes are nearly always deteriorations and that the occurrence of such mutations follows statistical laws. They seem to be caused by some disorganizing medium, especially short wavelength radiation entering the chromosomes of the germ cells. The rate of mutation in a species, therefore, depends on the rate at which such rays will penetrate the germ cells, which in turn is statistically dependent on the amount of radiation entering the environment. Before the flood, the environment as pictured above would have far less such radiation than does the present one. Therefore, there must have been fewer mutations. Everything favored the continued productions of larger, stronger, longer-lived specimens of every type of creature. This, of course, is what we have already seen the fossil record to indicate. According to the Bible, many men lived to be more than 900 years old. However, with the vapor canopy precipitated at the time of the flood, the mutation rate speeded up. The size and strength of the average creature deteriorated. Many species became extinct, and the length of the lifespan began a steady decline. These trends are still apparent today, although modern medical and sanitary science has, to a considerable extent, masked the natural trend as far as man is concerned. This theory clarifies and makes more vivid the picturesque language of Genesis that the windows, literally floodgates, of heaven were opened. At the same time, the fountains of the great deep were broken up, implying a tremendous tidal upheaval of the waters that were under the firmament. It's now easier to realize something of the overwhelming nature of this catastrophe. Uh, certainly, Every foot of the earth's surface must have been profoundly disturbed and altered. All creatures except those at home in the water and those preserved by God in the ark must have violently perished, many of them being buried alive in the whirling sediments and debris. When, a year later, Noah and his family came out of the ark, they saw a tremendously different world. No canopy of vapor filtered and diffused the sun's rays any longer. A rainbow appeared in the sky as a sign from God that this aqueous judgment would never again be visited on the earth. And indeed it could not if the upper waters were no longer there. 
It is manifest that this great event, if it occurred, would be preserved not only in the rocks, but in the history and traditions of the race. That this is actually the case is known to every student of ethnology. Practically every country and tribe in the world has its own flood story, many of them amazingly similar to the Bible story, even in details such as the sending of the dove and the raven to search for land and the offering of sacrifices to the deity when the waters subsided. Yet the similarity is not so marked as to permit the idea that that somehow the Genesis account had penetrated to all these scattered peoples. All of the stories, except that in Genesis, have been distorted with all sorts of impossible and absurd fancies. Yet they all obviously have arisen from the same original source. Since most of them were handed down by word of mouth, this is exactly what would be expected. Uh, To cite only a few examples in order to illustrate the worldwide nature of this tradition, flood stories have been found in such widely scattered lands as China, Babylon, Wales, Russia, India, America, practically all Indian tribes here, Hawaii, Scandinavia, Sumatra, Peru, Polynesia, and in fact every region in the world, uh, save certain parts of Africa. Geologists who dogmatically affirm that the universal flood is purely legendary uh, seem to completely ignore this powerful ethnological evidence. The very peoples and population of the world are a convincing testimony to their origin from a common stock at about the time and place indicated in the biblical record. Archaeological evidence invariably points to some point near the eastern shore of the Mediterranean as the cradle of civilization. The recorded or otherwise trustworthy history of nations elsewhere in the world always indicates either a migration from this area or else fades into oblivion at a time when Chaldea and Other eastern nations are known to have been in an advanced stage of civilization. Furthermore, assuming that the present human race sprang originally from two people, whether they were the original ape-like dawn man and his mate or, or Noah and his wife, we find that the present population of the world supports the latter view, Noah and his wife, and makes the former seem ridiculous. The population of the world in 1800 has been estimated at about 850 million. It is now, 1950, about 3 billion. We can say that the population has doubled in about the past 100 years. There is no objective reason to suppose that this rate of 100 years for the population of the world to double itself should have been greatly different at other periods in the history of the world. In 1650, the world population was only about 400 million. So the present rate implies a considerably more rapid increase. And now, if the original population was 2, we can find by logarithms that the population would have to have doubled itself exactly 30 times to produce the present number of people in the world. Uh, 
If the original pair lived, for example, 500,000 years ago, which is considerably less than the average evolutionary estimate, the average interval for doubling of the population would have been 16,000 plus years, which is absurd. <laughs> if, on the other hand, all people are descended from Noah and his wife, who, according to some biblical chronologists, must have lived about 4,500 years ago, then the average interval for doubling is 150 years, which is entirely reasonable. One other phase of the flood story has often been questioned. It is said that Noah's Ark could not possibly have held two members of all the animal species in the world. However, it should be remembered that it was only necessary for Noah to provide for two members of each kind, with seven each of the clean animals for sacrifice. As mentioned previously, the term kind is probably much more elastic than our modern species concept, and it's sure that there was not an excessive number of original kinds. Adam was able to give names to all of them in less than one day, according to Genesis 2.20. Only the land animals were taken into the ark, of course, and there are comparatively few kinds of land animals uh, which are large. Most of the mammals, birds and reptiles, could have been placed in cages and stacked in tiers. The dimensions of the ark are given in terms of the cubit, which probably at that time was about 18 inches in length. If so, then it could be quickly calculated that the ark had a capacity of some one and one-half million cubic feet, easily equivalent to that of over 500 of our modern railroad cattle cars. Its dimensions were ideal for both storage purposes and for stability in the turbulent waters of a flood. The geographical distribution of animals was possibly quite different before the flood, but in any event, Noah did not have to find and bring the animals to the ark. The Bible says that God caused them to come to him, possibly through some intuition of the approaching catastrophe. Thus, there is nothing impossible or unreasonable about the biblical account of the ark and its inhabitants. Of course, I have to add as we end this section, even if it were seemingly impossible and unreasonable, our God can do anything anytime he wants. But it is uh, somewhat refreshing and enjoyable to hear uh, how the facts do line up with the facts, the facts of nature and the world and the Bible. They all, they all add up. We're going to talk about the age of the earth to end that chapter next time. Thank you so much for being here and listening. Do look around the site here. I think you'll find some things of, very, of interest to you, really. Meanwhile, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun and Lord Willing. We'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.